short fall ahead, which is a good thing. You know what else is a good thing? When I say, yo, because it makes everybody happy. I just bring in joy to everyone that hears my yo. Welcome it's to like another... Monsters, Inc., how run, you know, people run off of, uh, off of screams, screams and then those kids laughter. Yeah, the hardcore run scene off of yo's. runs off of Javier's yo's. You know how I made this little stinger off of Kickets? I yes. would. I wonder if I could make a yo one. Uh, it's more fun know. when you do it. I it mean, is... it would be the equivalent of, do you listen to Breakfast Club? What is that? It's a it's a hip hop radio show podcast. No, Charlemagne. Oh, Charlemagne course, chimes week. in with his yo yo yos, mm-hmm. which is um, like your yo. Also, there's a spaz song called "Just Say Go." That's just a compilation of goes, and okay. that's pretty sick. I'm not gonna lie. If it was so, a compilation of yos, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That. Like like kick it. How I I edited together a bunch of, you know, I took the words kick it off of like. Tribe Called Quest and Beastie Boys yeah. and Outspoken and stuff, but I don't know if there's any more yo's other than the one on the Gorilla Biscuits uh, record. I guess if anybody has another yo, a notable yo, here we drop, go, yo, drop it in the comments of this and see if I could make a yo stinger. But anyway, Jason, why don't you tell the people what we're doing here on this episode? Today, this is part two of the Texas Reason LP, Do You Know Who You Are, Revelation Records, number 51, released in 1996. A record so important, apparently, that we had to have two episodes to talk about it. So on our last episode... Guilty as charged. You two... I couldn't do it. You two sat down with Chris Daly and Garrett. And then on this episode, we sat down with Norm... And Scott, was that it? And Jay Robbins. And Jay Robbins. Oh, my God. And that produced a really cool bonus uh, talk. Did we release that already? I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I think so. With Norm and Scott. Well, if you're a patron, you know, because it's up. There's something up there for patrons. And I was, I mean... I never got to talk to Scott, so that was cool. He was super rad and uh, getting, you know, when you love a record enough, even though, you you know, I, I was just happy to see there was still stuff I didn't know and still getting everybody's different perspectives on it. Um, and especially getting Jay's because, yes. you know, Jay is a musician, songwriter, producer in his own right, um, you know, Jawbox, Burning Airlines, Channels, Office of Future Plans. I've never heard of um, those last two bands. Never heard of yeah, them. Yeah, they're they're all. I mean, he, he honestly he hasn't put uh, he hasn't put out a bad release. Like the solo album he did a couple years ago is great. Um, you know, he was in Government Issue. He's just always been fascinating to me, and he was super cool to talk to. And it was cool to get his perspective on Texas is the reason and. You know, someone that didn't come from the New York hardcore scene, he came from D.C. And to get a whole different, you know, looking at it through a whole different lens and knowing through talking to the guys in the band that they all were like, I said on D.C., I think it was absolutely the perfect person to have work on the record with them. And uh, I I hope you enjoy the interview as much as we enjoyed talking to you. It was great. It was great. 
before we get into said interview, I think now would be a really, really good time to shout it. Shout the kick those shouts. Shout at the devil. Bit of bow to this week's sponsor, War Records. Should I say this week? This bi week. This episode. This episode. This episode. This episode. War Records. Berthold City, March 18th. New album called. You're when words are not enough. You're going to have to fix this hop. I'm not Sorry. fixing shit. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> no, hey, listen, I didn't I didn't want to say last time because I didn't want to steal your thunder, but my birthday is March 18th. So happy birthday oh, to me with the new birthday right. city record. <laughs> yeah. I think I would love to receive one of those in the mail as a birthday present. I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> Autographed by Jason. Autographed uh, by I, Hey, that's not a bad idea. Well, I guess we're not I guess we're not cutting it. So Limited yes, edition. words when when words are not enough, which reminds me coincidentally of embrace. You know, there's the words, words are not are never enough. enough. Uh, which I listened to that album today. Um, but we're here to talk about Berthold City. The new song I heard is fucking great. You um, band is cool, straight edge band, great, great people in the band. Um, you know, they've they've put out already several records. I have a Berthold City bucket hat, which it I looks think you might be able to you still can, get. You should rock that more because yeah. it looks good. You should. Yeah, it does. It's like the best looking bucket hat I have for yeah. sure. Um, and I think War might still have them. If not, sorry. I think they um, do. Jason does guest vocals on the record, um, so I can't wait to hear that. Um, and uh, War also have some stuff coming up. Uh, a 12-inch uh, that collects the demo and two new tracks for Bent Blue, which features a friend of Javier and I, uh, Diego, a.k.a. Uh, Vacation Boss. Hey, Pundit. Mm-hmm. Um, Enact, which is uh, has members of Blue Monday, Cutting Through, Dying For It. I think my buddy Kyle is in that band. Yeah, my dude um, um, Thomas is in that band. Yeah. So, yeah, and I heard some stuff from that school. Fixation, Philly Zone. <laughs> Philly Zone. That that sound means. Philly Zone. Right I, you yeah. know what? I love that Fixation Flexi that they put out. Great stuff. And then also, um, Bent Blue are going to have a new LP, like of hey, new guess, material. Guess what? I heard it at Diego's house, and it's good. It's fucking awesome. I can't wait. That yeah. band's that. That's if, if there's one takeaway from this besides to order all the records that I mentioned, it's to definitely Bent order Bent Blue. Um, and my band enforced. also my band God my band Godhead is playing with Bent Blue um, a couple times coming up and i'm super stoked because i think we fit in perfectly with them and what they're doing and uh yeah and that enforced also a oh, fucking yeah. ripper oh yes so, war they're records richmond right yeah yeah on tour now with obituary municipal waste and spirit world perfect yeah. place for them yeah that's great it's a repress of their walls yeah so war records war-records.com war i'm sorry war-rec dot com um definitely hit them up great label literally you can close your eyes and point at a release on there and order it and you're not going to be disappointed all right you think it's time to kick it, kick it. can i kick it kick it kick it, kick it. 
creepy. <laughs> so what's up, everybody? Thanks for joining. So today we have um, part two of episode 51 on Texas is the Reason's Lone LP. Uh, today we have Norman, uh, we have Scott, and we also have Jay Robbins, who produced the record. So thanks so much for coming on, guys. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. Um, so I guess I wanted to start off, this is for Norman and Jay. You have a situation that's unique to a lot of people where you're, as far as my knowledge goes, your first encounter with each other was documented for everybody to be able to read mm. with antimatter. Um, the yeah. interview, was that the first time that you guys connected before? No. That was the first time I ever met you, yeah. Really? Yeah, that's why you were so upset at me. <laughs> because oh that's God. honestly one of my favorite interviews <laughs> of all time. Because it's like Norman, you know, I always, first off, Norman, when I found out that you were only a couple of years older than me, I was blown away because you'd just been around and seen so many things. I just assumed, you know, you were like an older person in the scene. I was just a kid with parents who didn't give a fuck. and you know you read this interview and it's like you're asking questions that you know jay i'm sure especially with you know at that point jawbox you know was uh it was like for your own special sweetheart era you're probably doing interviews all the time but none like this but i was very so i remember that meeting jay because i was fanboying out i mean i loved jawbox and sort of like the only way to to prevent that from coming out is to sort of level the playing field, right? And so you level the playing field by asking questions that Jay was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I mean, I remember it. I remember it being a little uncomfortable, but I don't really remember. I'm I'm sorry that I don't remember the substance that much. No, but, so, I mean, so what happened was we'd started talking about talking. We'd started sort of like mid-conversation. We were just talking about your week, and that week was the release of the album, and you were doing all the like, you know, the major label stuff that you do when you release an album. And it was a pretty that happen? It was a pretty normal conversation. Yeah. So I was, I was, it was um, the album came out I think on Valentine's Day or around Valentine's Day. Yeah. And yeah, that was so. Sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everything was very, you know, it was sweetheart. It was around Valentine's Day. You know, we're having a, a very banal conversation about major labels. And then I say, tell me about your first crush. Yeah. And I remember you were like, mm, mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it sort of just went from there. But we, you know, we had a, a really good conversation. I, you know, I think throwing that in out of nowhere did catch you a little off guard. And that made, that made the, the playing field level to me. And so right. it felt like the conversation now could be a normal adult conversation as opposed to, I fucking love Jawbox. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's what I was afraid to do on here. <laughs> you, you helped me out there, but, um, cause I love to, fun. <laughs> I love to that. Um, there's a point where, uh, you know, Norm, Norman basically, like, says, like, um, you know, he kind of confronts the fact, like, you seem a little stressed. 
And then Jay is just honest. And he's like, well, yeah, your, your questions really threw me off. And I just loved the raw honesty of that whole exchange of just like, you know, Norman admitting like, Hey man, I can tell you're stressed. And then Jay actually, you know, so I feel like some people would have been like, no, everything's fine. And just kind of admitting. And I always wondered, like, did that kind of solidify like a connection between you guys that would have parlayed into, you know, being working together on this record? Well, I mean, I'll let Jay answer in one second. I will say that when Mike Gitter first mentioned Jay's name, because Mike was sort of like, he was, I don't know that he was, what was he doing, Scott? Was he sort of just like helping, advising? He was doing, yeah, he was, he was just always around. And I think he, he was, was around <laughs> trying to get his little, uh, you know, his hands in the mix, you know, right, definitely, <laughs> yeah. definitely. And, and so he, he was one of the, he was probably the first person to say, you should talk to Jay Robbins. And I remember thinking like, I think I may have fucked it up with Jay Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he wants to work with me. <laughs> but yeah, no, well, clearly that wasn't true. <laughs> Or you forgot all about who Norman was and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. You wore like one of the uh, glasses oh, with the nose and the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> so you so, guys. I mean, I'll ask Jay. So, like, so when I think Mike reached out to you first, were you familiar with the band? My God, dude, I can't. I don't I think mean, so. I don't think anyone was really familiar with us at that yeah. I don't think I was. I don't think I was. Yeah, I don't think I would have been. This is like a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so I did get something, a, a picture. I don't know if you can see it. This is a cassette tape uh, from Friend of the Pod. Let me hold it up. Uh, ah, Dave, Brown, Dave Brown from, okay. from uh, uh, Richmond. And yeah. he says he got this tape from you, Jay. I, and I'm, I'm wondering if this was kind of, it has, it's a live show at the Academy. It's dated 9-22-95. It says third show. Did you guys send that tape to Jay as like, hey, here's some of the songs? That, that ring yeah. the bell. Yes, I remember that. And I think we played every song like twice the speed that they're supposed that it ended up. <laughs> it was because we, we were so nervous were. at that show. <laughs> so, I, I call that playing a show. <laughs> well it was we were definitely like like that show was with quicksand and Civ at the academy and it was the first time we'd ever played in front of a substantial amount of people and so like we went out just completely like i mean i i know for sure like i was completely just i have no memory of that show whatsoever it started it ended and the next thing i know we were screaming outside the window of the dressing room with glenn i don't know something <laughs> I kind of remember all the antics, but nothing about really the show at all. I remember, like, you know, Glenn falling on stage in front of everybody on purpose and getting a big rise and just getting <laughs> there and, you know, like, you know, I remember, like, you know, the members of Quicksand showing up and, you know, like it was like, I remember all, like, kind of that stuff, but have no memory at all of that, that show being on stage or anything about it. Yeah, I'm almost mortified that we sent it to Jay. <laughs> but I, I guess that's all we had. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully, I mean, Dave Brown can digitize it. Great. That's a, that's a, that's a memory I do have. I remember like 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 liking it. You know, <laughs> I remember much else <laughs> about it. But I remember being like, oh yeah, this shit's great. Did you, were you, Jay? Were you aware of 
like revelation records uh before that or um, i mean not nominally it's not really like <sighs> i was never a, a fan of of really hardly any manifestation of new york hardcore i have to confess i mean like the antidote seven inch is probably about the only like new york hardcore seven inch that i was like fuck yes this is awesome uh, otherwise it was just a scene that i you know was just not just not my not my bag but then that's another thing about texas that was really strange to me because i thought like how is this sort of super melodic kind of like real like hard on your sleeve kind of emotional kind of pop inflected band coming out of this scene that i thought of as like super macho and real like metal metal based you know so well, that we were was pretty like, metal we <laughs> <laughs> were pretty metal for sure but it's it was a <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I, mean, I actually, I actually remember being in the studio and just being like, "So I don't know about what, what Garrett's going to tell you, but my guitar sound is fucking metal." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I was going to ask, what's your process when a band approaches you to record with you, and what was your process at the time when Texas got in touch with you? Do you listen to other bands and think, "Oh, I'm going to try to make it sound like this," or do you let the band come in and naturally just let things take their course on how things are going to sound? Well, I mean, I think it's especially right now, it's, and I mean, not just right now, I'd like to think that I always, you know, the goal is to, for the, for the, the, the thing itself to, to come out in its most, you know, realized form as, as what it is, instead of being like, you know, I mean, there's always a little bit of element of like things that you're influenced by and you, you know, and if a band or an artist is like, if they want to like, really if they want that influence to be obvious then there's there's a way to sort of make that work but it's definitely i always think that it's about like to me well anyways back back like working with those guys that's one of the first times that i ever went in the studio with another band and so i was just really influenced by my experiences um with people like ian burgess and ted nicely um and eli janney and basically and, and uh, Barrett Jones, who recorded the first Jawbox 7-inch, like every time that I've been in the studio and really liked it, it was a result of, you know, like feeling supported in this mission to like get my music across in, a, in, the, in the best, most effective way that I could, you know, that it could happen. And so, you know, that's like, that's the thing that I always carry with me is like, you know, like I'm not out to make my record. I'm out to help you make your record. And that like, you know, there are times, especially like, you know, decades ago in my youth when it's like having somebody who I really felt was on my side in the studio was, was like, was crucial. And and even more so, like I'm thinking about like Ian Burgess, who recorded the second Jawbox record. This was a this was someone who had recorded a lot of my favorite records, all these Midwestern sort of post-punk, you know, like the first couple of big black records and Naked Raygun and um Effigies and all these kind of just music that was really dear to me. And then, you know, to get to know this guy, and then you're in the studio with him. 
and he, you know, you've done a take and he gives you the devil horns and he's like basically treating you like your band is fucking awesome and he's your number one fan. And then also helping you because you didn't realize you were out of tune and maybe you need to redo this thing or, you know, those, those kind of like keeping the train on the tracks kind of things. I mean, all that stuff was hugely influential to me. So that's what I would, that's what I wanted to bring when, when I started working with bands, I'm like, I want to be that person who helps you helps keep the train on the tracks, you know, and maybe is able to see things from the outside that you are not seeing so clearly because you're, you're deep in it, which is right where you should be. Right. Like you should be, and especially a record that's like, what was that? It was like a five day record from beginning to end, like recording and mix and everything. So it was like this intense period for everybody, but it's good. It's, it's good to have that like uh, person who is, has their eye on the big picture. And that's the, that was sort of the role that I wanted to play, you know? Yeah. And Jay, you didn't just turn knobs on this record. Like you, your hands are in it. You played percussion and strings on the record as well. Right. So you weren't just like, yeah, good job guys. Like next you, you, you were right. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't engineer at that point. I was really not qualified to engineer a record mm. at all. You know? So we had, um, Jawbox had recorded uh, for your own special sweetheart. The engineer on that record was Drew Mazurik, who uh, was a super great guy, excellent engineer. And he was the house engineer at Oz, which was the studio where we did for your own special sweetheart, which was and still is my favorite, favorite room for drums, for just like for the vibe of it. And that's where my studio is now. I was able to move in there to that same space in 2011. But, um, but like, so I just thought like, well, Sweetheart was the best, that turned out the best of any record that I had ever been a part of. So I thought if someone wants me to be involved in their record, maybe they, we can do it here with all these known quantities, like this awesome room and the sunlight coming through the windows and Drew's a great engineer. And like, you know, I could just be the person who's like, you know, really you should do that again because you're speeding up or whatever the factor is that might, you know, like, if it was just a little more this way or that way, you would really hit that. It would really kind of hit the spot. Like the song would really gel. So, and a lot of stuff, like, uh, I think at that time I was real deep into like, I could just come up with vocal harmonies all day long. So, I mean, Garrett and I did a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, they invited me. You actually me. reminded me of something that I forgot about completely, which is that we actually went into the studio with eight songs. Do you know who you are? Didn't exist. And it was, and it was, um, I, I mean, to me, like, you know, one of the roles that Jay played that I felt was so good. I mean, not only was he like the ultimate tiebreaker because we all respected him. So pretty much like if he said something was good, we were like, great. Um, and for, for our band to have that, you should just join our band. Cause that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but also that sort of encouragement to keep looking and finding and, and doing something. And I think a lot of people, you know, when I started playing that initial riff to Do You Know Who You Are, and then Garrett started playing along to it, and we started, like, it started becoming something, a lot of people could, would have been like, okay, okay, we're making a record, though, so just chill out. But Jay was very, like, keep going, you know, <laughs> and encouraging. And then, like, we should track it. 
you know, and then it turned into something. And then Jay added this great feedback track at the end of it on guitar. Um, and, you know, and it became to me like a very central piece of the record. It, it's sort of like the glue that binds in my opinion. And that yes. wouldn't have happened, I think, with another producer. Especially with five days to do a record. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> actually completely insane. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, it really is. That's cool. Let's not lose that. Yeah, yeah. Sure. When we talked to um, Chris and uh, Garrett, they had mentioned that there was a debate of whether or not to lead off the album with that song. I forget where he said where they said people's votes lied. Jay, were you? I the feel like tiebreaker? I feel like I was the. I was the fucking only person on that side. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. I can't remember. You know what my, like, my one, like, my biggest memory, I mean, because it is, like, it's such a long time ago, and my memory's kind of shit at the best of times, but, like, I, like, my, my biggest memories from that record are, like, working on vocal harmonies with Garrett, which was super fun, and I remember listening to, uh, like, I don't know how we had time to listen to Slayer in the control room, but I, I seem to remember Chris Daly <laughs> stage dive off the, <laughs> like, the equipment rack. Do you remember that? Yeah, like, I do. <laughs> yeah, like, I forget which Slayer record it was, but it might have been, like, Angel of Death, probably something, but, yeah. Yeah, those are we my We probably brought that as memories. a reference. Just supposed to be, I mean, like, you know, I, I for sure, like, I was like, yeah, it's got to be fucking, like, hard, you know? <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, I think I was the only person on that side and, you know, in retrospect, I like where it is. It's fine, <laughs> but I do actually think Jay was the deciding vote. <laughs> I will say that, um, that, and I mentioned on the last episode, there was the show in Philly during the reunion tour where that opened the set and you guys actually played it because, you know, there was a tribute to a fan who had passed away. And I don't know if I'd ever seen something just so emotionally, I don't know if captivating is the right word, but it was just such a moment that I felt thankful to be there. And just, it was, it like gave that song a whole new meaning after that for me. That's some, I mean, maybe because Jay probably doesn't know the story, but that's something that's real. Like, you know, a family came up to us before the show and, you know, and actually there was a couple of things going on that night. One was that a family had come up to us um, before the show to talk about uh, their son, brother, you know, and um, who had recently passed and that he had learned how to play this song on guitar and that he loved this song so much and that he actually wanted to listen to it as he was passing. It was a, that's like a major crazy thing to hear, you know, of anything that you have anything to do with. That's just so like already emotional. But then on top of that, Scott and I were specifically very much in a weird place because we had just found out. So Scott and I, our first band back in 1990 was called Fountainhead. And the singer for Fountainhead was this guy, Bill. Bill was the guy who brought me and Scott together. He introduced us. He was like this he was everybody's friend. He was like the mayor of Long Island hardcore. You know, <laughs> he was the coolest guy. Um, but that night, a friend of mine texted me this, um, Bill had been living in Peru and he texted me this newspaper article in Spanish and I can read Spanish. And it basically said that 
Bill had killed himself. And we were just completely just, you know, we were in the stage of denial, probably. At least I was. Yeah, I but was, it was sure. it was it was just very blank, sort of like night in a million ways. So with that happening and then meeting the family, there was just this I don't know, like it it wasn't like dark, like bad dark vibe, but I definitely was in a place to want to play in a certain way. And um, and that was the only time ever in the history of the band that we've ever played Do You Know Who You Are live. You could feel it in, in the in the room. Yeah, I, and I didn't know. I thought you guys, like I kind of assumed you guys always just opened with it or whatever, like playing it. But then, no, you came out to like usually it was like the the background music or whatever when you came out. Because it hurts my fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, just such a like... I, I truly can't imagine the album without that. And I just love the fact that it just kind of just came together. And it, because it really is like a central piece of the record. And um, I just remembered when I, when that album came into my life, I didn't know Texas. I knew Jawbox. I was a big Jawbox fan. So for me, having like it on Revelation and having Jay involved with the, you know, the Discord connection, like that was literally like, you know, chocolate and peanut butter for me. I was just like, oh man, this is going to be like the, the Reese's peanut butter cup of music. And it was. No and, higher praise. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, so we weren't allowed to be on Discord. So this was the next best thing. <laughs> yeah. Unless you move, you have to move. I wonder what the, uh, what the grace period is for how long you'd have to live in DC. Cause didn't, there's some I feel like Trusty just moved in and got That's what I was, the next day. <laughs> that was what I was thinking of. They came from Arkansas and then like, yeah, oh, you're in D.C. now. But um, Jay, did this, after doing this record, I noticed all of a sudden your name was on like so many, like Promise Ring went to you and, you know, Jets to Brazil, which, you know, had daily. Did Do you think this is the record that kind of really opened that door where people realized like, oh, Jay Robbins from Jawbox, he... Produces and I think it did kind of correlate with Jawbox winding down around the time uh, that this came out, maybe within a year or so. Yeah, no, I mean, 100%. I mean, I, I knew I had been recording people in the basement of the Jawbox house on like cassette eight track, you know, like, like not, um, it's not the same. <laughs> um, but, but I knew, you know, for every time I ever went in the studio with any band I'd ever been in, I was just like, this this is where I want to be. Like, this is the moment of, you know, because it's so, it's such a, it's such a moment of intensity. And, and it's like, at the end of it, you have a, you know, you have this thing that's just been in the ether, like in your brain. And like, you know, it's, it, 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 at the end of the whole process, you know, it's, it's taken form, like it's manifested. So, and it's, it's for better or worse, it's the version that people are going to relate, most people are going to relate to, you know, like, I mean, the cool thing about a song is it could be a little different every night, depending on the energy, but that when you kind of capture it on the record, that's part of why it, it's so, you know, you want it to be right. But that whole, that whole, like, you know, I don't know. I just, I mean, I feel very, I'm, it's feel very fortunate that I was a part of that record because it is a, not only is it a really special record, but it did really help 
me kind of like, it, it was a springboard for me because of other people that, that knew these guys and, you know, were, you know, familiar with Jawbox, I guess, too. And so it, it, did, it did open a door for me in a really big way. And then one of the things we talked about in the last episode, too, was for some, you know, a lot of records from that era can sound kind of dated. And this one doesn't. Mm-hmm. Like the record, it's like it's got this magical kind of quality to it. Um, and I do think, I wonder if some of that would also be attributed not only to Jay's production and, of course, the songs um, and the performance, but to uh, Vlado Meller, the mastering, because like it just has this like it like jumps right out. Like when you hear it and just everything sounds so crisp. How did you? I think, that, I, I think there's two things that, that play, though. I mean, definitely Vlado, Vlado's mastering. Definitely. I think when we all got it, we were all like, wow, like he really did a good job. Like, no doubt. It sounded really good before then. He definitely gave it the right sort of like way forward. That said, I think that for some reason, when you said, um, you know, records that didn't stand the test of time or whatever, and I kept thinking about um, the Promise Rings first record, 30 Degrees Everywhere. That was so, what I brought up on the last episode when I was oh, trying that's to explain. Funny. Yeah. But I remember them telling us about it because <clears throat> they were asking us about Jay. And we were like, yes, go to Jay. Go to Jay. But, like, you know, when they were talking about 30 Degrees Everywhere, Casey Rice did that record. And, you know, Casey at that point, you know, he was a Chicago indie guy, you know, like, and he sort of was, like, they described it as him basically being like, yeah, that takes good enough. It's punk rock. Who gives a fuck? You know what I mean? And it was a very sort of like punk rock sort of thing. And so when you go into a session like that, just with that mindset, you know, you you get what you get, basically. I feel like Jay took our, or even let's say my, delusions of grandeur seriously, right? <laughs> I, I didn't want to make a punk rock album. <laughs> like, no, but, it, you, that, but it's obviously not a punk rock album. Like it's, you know, the songs just aren't, they don't, they're not that, they're not, you know. And we never wanted to be a punk rock band either. That was like, and that's why everyone kind of was like mad at us in the beginning because you know, <laughs> missed its lyric. And we were playing like opening with playing with Snapcase and Mouthpiece and like like what the fuck's going on? Why are these guys here? Like, right. like well, we belong here just as much as anybody else. Like you know. Right, like, but that's the beginning of. Don't you think that's kind of like the beginning of like a? I feel like it comes in waves where it's like, like punk music has its kind of uh, real. Um, has this has like can have this like real entrenched orthodoxy and then these waves kind of come that open it up and that was a beginning of of a of an of a wave or or was on a on a it was part of a wave of opening up the sound of what what it would like what is what exactly does it mean if you know because if you know that punk is the is this inspiring force behind what you're doing but you want to make something that is, you know, I mean, beautiful, right? <laughs> like, like those things aren't mutually exclusive, but at that time it was like a, you know, that was, that would have been a shock to a lot of people. It's just like, Oh, well, it's not heavy enough or it's not this enough or not that enough or whatever. And, you know, that, I mean, I mean, I think the one reason the record, the main reason that the record is, has a timeless quality is just because the songs are like, 
real, they're, they're really direct, you know, and they're really like, I mean, I remember thinking that like, like a lot of them, the, the riffs are just like, they're, they're simple in a way, but, uh, yeah, I don't You're know. the only person who would say that. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I remember Have you heard your that, lips? Like, like, that, like, like back into the left, right? Like it's like the, the D, the drop D tuning. And I'm like, I'm like, why can't I write a song this simple? You know what I mean? It really, I was just like, it's so fucking good. And you're and just like, just like. It's, it's funny because like, right, I'm playing with Thursday now and they, their songs are like I literally have to draw out maps to the songs when I'm learning them because I'm just like, what the fuck? Like the chord changes every third, you know, you know, just like, and it's, everything is difficult. It's like math, you know? Um, and, and if anything, I would say like those, those sort of chord voicings are basically just when you're saying like, why couldn't I make a chord that simple? It's because I'm taking chords you made and just trying to simplify them. Cause I can't play that. <laughs> well, I mean, not just chords though i just mean like the flow the flow of it's just like the songwriting on that record in particular just has this like effortless like perfect like things happen you know it's it just uh it's yeah i don't know it's it hits the sweet spot like it's a the, all the songs are just so well constructed and they're not like to me like in like create creatively, I spent like decades with this uh, mistaken notion that making things more complicated automatically made them better. And then like I've spent the last two decades trying to like uh, untangle myself from that, you know, way of thinking. And part of it is like getting back to things like open, like writing a lot in an open D tuning that is not that different than like, the Texas record, you know, and just being like, I'm not trying to, I'm not going to try to like write things to impress myself with like how twisted up I can make my fingers and like move to the next thing or what I can do, you know, the acrobatics I can play while I'm also singing, like who gives a shit? It just, the essence of the song has to be strong. And that's right. like a real simple, pure, direct thing. And that fucking record has it in spades. So I agree. I mean, I agree. Is I, I didn't write or play on the record, full disclosure. I don't know if you guys know that. <laughs> I wasn't there. But the songs, I would say they're they're also like deceptively simple because there's so many like layers and things going on as well and like little cool guitar things. But yeah, like a song like Back in the Left, like I can play the main riff on that and I'm not good at guitar. I can kind of butcher my way through it because yeah, it's the open D tuning and it's a but it has so much going on. We also talked about how the rhythm section on this record just like has such a great, um, like a great sound. I mean, the drums, I love the sound. I, we, we heard that some of it used the snare on one of my favorite records ever, uh, the Pony Express record snare oh, drum. That I, I don't remember, but it's, I suppose it's possible. I mean, that, you figure someone like, yeah, like Chris that. was the one that told us, and that's not something you'd forget as the. Yeah, singer. he wouldn't. He would forget. <laughs> In my memory, the studio didn't have. Um, I know they had some amps, like they had some decent uh, 
like a decent collection of vintage guitar amps because Joe, one of the studio owners, that was like his thing. He had this massive collection of old amps, but I don't remember a house kit at the studio, but that doesn't mean there wasn't one. So, you know, I mean, it is the same room where Pony Express was recorded. So, I mean, that, and that room really has a sound and I think you can't, you kind of can't miss it when you hear it, but I don't, yeah, I mean, if Chris says, if Chris says so, I'm sure it's true. <laughs> and then Scott, when you, for, for bass, like what, what was your, for people that are like gearheads, maybe a high level, like what was your setup, like your tone? Like, I'm thinking like something to forget version two, like the bass just has this perfect sound and like intonation. Like, what was... I, you know, it came, it literally was, it was, there was an 810 there. I think, I think I had my SVT cabinet, my SVT head, the, the 70s that I still own. Um, and we just kind of plugged in. I remember we were like, Jay, show us how to play this bass line. And you were like, did it. And I was like, all right, that's, that's enough. Jack potential. Yeah, yeah, you were yeah. Talking, like, yeah. We were like, play the Jack oh. potential 70s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you want to show us this riff. Like, we were all like, got it around, you know, Jay, you this riff. But like, literally, we, we plugged in and I had, um, I had like a '90s jazz bass at the time that and that and my um and my P bass the the sunburst one that I've had forever that I and I basically played on both of them but I think for the most part it was the white jazz bass um, cool. and it just it it was literally kind of the easiest you know ever it was like we plugged in didn't really touch much and we just kind of went for it and it just came out like pretty natural and yeah I, I mean i agree i love the way that it sounds I, i've never had like never had it like come so easily without having to tweak or try oh maybe it needs to do this maybe just yeah, oh, maybe let's get it was like so simple that's a good example of that too because i even remember like i'm a fucking tweaker i love tweaking and i remember just plugging in getting my tone then turning to jay and expecting him to be like do this 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 and he just looked at me he was like it's fucking great don't change the thing. <laughs> yeah, <but what? laughs> I mean, it was like you guys sounded incredible. So, I think a lot of people feel like it's like it's a matter of necessity when you get in the studio to like tear everything down and then build it back up, you know, in some imaginary, I don't know what. I mean, sometimes that's necessary, but it's also like, you know, when something's great you, and you recognize that it's already great, like, and you've only got five days to make a whole record. Like, why would you fuck with it? You know? Yeah, and I like, think we all time think, to write a new song. We paid so much attention to the what the gear that we wanted and the gear that the bands that we loved had. And then when we and we and we collected that gear, you know, like you know, Norm had that 800 that sounded amazing. Garrett had his 800 sounded amazing. I finally got that SVT head, and you know, and you know, it just it just we kind of knew what we wanted the sound like by you know seeing the bands that we like what they sounded like and i think we were just ready and also just you know i'll just never from i remember being just like so psyched when we heard that jay wanted to do it and and then like and then where we were going to do it and then it didn't really hit until like i remember walking in the door and seeing all the records that were recorded on the walls and then i was just like holy fuck we're here like this is like insane. <laughs> i love that you know and what and else was there? Pony Express. You said for your own special sweetheart. What are some other ones? GBSB. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. At least two. I think three girls against boys records. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Fed Nicely did a bunch of stuff there. Uh, Monsterland, um, Mind Science of the Mind, Nathan Larson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you got to understand, we were like, yes, we were like New York hardcore kids or whatever, but like we were fucking obsessed with Washington, D.C. <laughs> we just were. You can yeah, tell I mean, with the record. DC band played in New York. We all were there, and we were right up front, like taking notes. You know, like this is you know, it wasn't like you know how we. I mean, we we saw Agnostic Front a million times. Like we like did that. Right. Kind of like, <laughs> and, you know, like but this was like something new and something fresh, and you know, and and it it just was like what we were into, and I think that was also just like kind of what made us different and that like and I, I mean i said we didn't want to be a punk rock band but we you know we were like we were super punk we were like you know like ask anybody like we but i mean you look at like, way, you know? like are you it's like are, am i punk like agnostic fronts punk or am i punk like shudder to think is punk like to me it's the same thing exactly. <laughs> honestly same. i just chose to go in a different direction and so you know like to me like i remember the first time i heard get your goat and just being like this is or not even get your goat fucking um what's the the song where about three dreams the one where like we're naked uh, except for the spot, patches yeah. that we're stitching into our groin like just listening to those lyrics and just being like this is fucking demented i love it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you know like going to see shard think and craig comes out with like overalls and no shirt on that's way more punk than you know <laughs> any <laughs> anything you've ever seen you know like I was going to say, I, I remember having a conversation with Scott about whether or not the West Coast would like us based on the people that we talked to saying that they did or didn't like Shudder to Think. <laughs> and apparently, like, no one liked Shudder to Think on the West Coast, so we were just like, yeah, they're not going to like us. <laughs> <laughs> See, I loved them, and, and I, like I said, I Discord was my entry into all this. So I was already, you know, 14, 15 years old, but, you know, that was, like, my shit. And still is today. And I think what I loved with Texas was that it kind of bridged the gap between the New York hardcore stuff and the DC stuff. And, you know, Jason and I had talked about on the last episode how this record specifically really was like the game changer for me personally, because it was the one that finally kind of took, because, you know, when you get into hardcore, you're just so hyper focused. You know, I had a few things outside of hardcore that I always liked and, and never got rid of, but a lot of stuff just kind of falls to the side. Like a lot of the, you know, 90s alternative rock that I, you know, was the first stuff I heard, I kind of forgot about. And I think with this Texas record, it kind of made me just knock off those blinders and be like, I'm going to like what I'm going to like. And if it's attached to hardcore, that's cool. If it's not, if, it, if I want to listen to Smashing Pumpkins... I'm going to listen to Smashing Pumpkins. I don't give a fuck. Because there was this, you know, the mentality, especially when you're a teen, of like, got to just be hardcore, man. Because, I, you know, you get made fun of in your group of friends for, why do you still have a Smashing Pumpkins CD? It's interesting, though, because I don't feel like we, you know, and maybe I'm just like, uh, maybe I'm different. I don't know. <laughs> but I, even when I think about, like, Jay, did you play on, um, did you play on You? Yeah, that's the first yeah. record that ever played on and, that's and my favorite me, government issue record by the way i was gonna say like that i remember i bought that tape at the cb's canteen and uh and what is it where you live 
This is the first yeah. song on side B, I think it was. <laughs> yeah. But I but that song I remember specifically like, yeah, I want to do something like that. Because that had like that sort of just like strong melodic component that was just like, you know, driving and full. And it was, I mean, to me, like, that's what I'm like. It's funny that I'm even thinking about this because I haven't thought about this in a while. But like, you know, but that record too was like a huge part of me saying, and this was what, 1989? What year was uh, that? I, well, I think you came out in like 87. <laughs> Or 87, yeah. Okay, maybe I bought it in 88 or 89 then, whenever the canteen opened. But, like, it was, that was a very, like, seminal thing for me. Like, these were the bands that were sort of, like, paving the way for, like, expanding and broadening the perception of what is and what isn't punk. And so by the time, you know, 95 rolls around, I'm already, like, you know, six years deep into, like, trying to figure out, like, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, I think that was a thing for me that was a real benefit of being in DC because it was such a, DC was such a backwater in so many ways. Like in the eighties, it was not like, you know, it was just this weird little, uh, it was a weird little enclave unto itself. And there was already, you know, the like hyper orthodoxy about what's punk enough, um, you know, and what's the correct way to be punk that had already passed by the time that I was started going to shows. So, you know, my first shows were like, um, like GI shows was like GIs before I joined the band long before I joined the band, but also like, you know, nine, three, five, three, which was just like a extremely twisted, weird, psychedelic inflected art band that to this day you can't properly categorize or like beef eater who were like swinging wildly between this like super primitive kind of political hardcore and then like Jimi hendrix and funk and stuff like you know or bat like you know bad brains playing reggae or whatever or scream you know it's all bands that were like super uh um What's the word? I forgot I'm, I'm the word I'm looking for. Just real diverse. And they're, you know, they, they were like hungry to make music and not be in a, not be in a pigeonhole, you know? Um, and so that was my, like my first impression of punk was like, I remember being really like, you know, being that, that really youthful feeling of like when you start getting hardcore records and you're like, okay, well, this isn't, this isn't really hardcore, is it? No, that's not hardcore. Like you just get obsessed with the idea of what's categorizing things and like, you know, but, but the, the, but when I started going to shows, it was the opposite thing of like, you know, you don't want it to be too, you want to be one step ahead of whatever someone else is thinking, you know, like you can't just, uh, it can't just be, you, if you, if you're creating what you're expected to create, then you're, then you're, then it's a letdown because you've got to always be pushing into some territory that makes it more, uh, you know, it's really punk to like challenge people somehow. And so if you just do the same kind of sound, then you're not challenging people was sort of always, you know, a thing that was in the background of bands I used to go see, but you know, and um, I'll, I'll, I'll say the fear was still there. Like I was still afraid the whole time we were making the record. 
I mean, I don't know if Scott, how much Scott remembers about it, but like, I was, I remember feeling like, are we going too far? Like, are, is is the scene gonna really like this? Especially when we wrote, "Do you know who you are?" And like, it yeah. started going more into this like, you know, other place. And 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 I always like the harbinger of that entire fear to me, um, or maybe not harbinger, but the symbol of that entire fear to me to this day is still my regret that the piano in Jack with one eye was buried. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Cause I remembered on a, on an Instagram, you did one of those Instagram Q and A's a couple years ago and you mentioned that. So thanks for bringing it up. Save, save yeah. me from having J- to remember I mean, what J- song it was. J- Jay played a lovely piano part uh, in Jack with one eye. If you've listened to it, <laughs> but, That's but I was, I was fearful. I was like, oh, my God, now we're bringing in piano. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say also, though, when I first came to your house, you know, when we first met and we first connected over music, we were connected over, like, the one thing that we always wanted to have, someone that sang and not screamed. And, like, we were, like, super into, like, I mean, like, Burn was as, like, like, as heavy as we were, like, you know, thinking about you know but it was like you know like verbal assault and turning point like at the end you know like you know like things like that those were the bands like we were like excited about you know and also like the dc things and you know right. I, I remember us me being like since jay mentioned beef eater i was like i love beef eater and you were like i don't know about beef eater but you know? <laughs> i still don't know about beef i love it jay don't worry <laughs> yeah I, I love it too i love all that stuff but, but yeah but i think that that was like the some the thing that i i, I mean i like meeting like with bill like Seeing Bill and Bill's like, oh, I've been talking about Norm. We want to do a band. You play bass. You got you got to hang out with Norm. And like, and I think I just found out who Norm Norman was. And I was like, yeah, okay. And I I think I called you. I was like, Billy gave me your number. You know, you said we need to hang out. And was like, and I just got to your house and we like I sat in your bedroom and you know you pulled out your SG and we were just like, all right. And like we just had this like instant connection of like we knew that we were going to do this melodic type of band and. And that's kind of where, how it started, you know, that was really just like the, the beginning of it all. And when you, if you listen to Fountainhead, I mean, really, it's like, that was 1990. And it was like, we were still on that tip. Like we just, you know, we wanted to play melodic sort of tuneful post-punk or whatever it was to <laughs> us. And, <laughs> and that was the route that we were on. And, you know, if anything, me going into Resurrection and 108 and Shelter were just sort of diversions because they were just like, I needed to do something and I needed to tour. I needed to make money. And or like with Resurrection, I was literally homeless. And Rob was like, you can join my band. Come on tour. I was like, Great. <laughs> and then that was also like we saw Resurrection play. And I remember us both being like, we need to be in a band with that drummer. Like we need a True. Like, right. Chris, yeah. like, who is this guy? <laughs> and like literally like the first day I met Chris, I was like, we need to start a band. Like I wasn't even like, hey, what are you? What are you into? Like, what are you like? Who are you like? And she's like, hey, we need to be in a band. Like you, you're like you're exactly what like I want to be around, you know. And yeah, I still do exactly. I mean, if I you know if I was in that world of being in bands and I was closer, I'd be begging the like, to play in a band every day because he's just like for me like just everything, you know. He's just it's like always. I feel like we're we're just getting to a place again where like drummers are having these like strong identities 
because it felt, it felt like there was this, this time, this period of time where you weren't really getting that. And like, especially at that time in the nineties, early to mid nineties, you talk about the Alan cages and, you know, what Chris Daly was doing, what, what Zach was doing, like Darren Zentek and four fifty four Scott. Scott yeah. Like these people were, they weren't just timekeepers. They had fucking voices and identities. And the second they sat down and played, you were like, that's that person. Fuck. Yeah. And like, you know, that was the thing about playing with Chris that was, you know, obviously what Scott's saying, it's like, same for me. It was like the most attractive thing to me is like, he sat down to play and I was like, Chris, fuck yeah. You know what I mean? Like I hear his voice loud and clear. I know what his lexicon of drumming is like. Let's, let's work in that. Um, yeah, I, I think it's definitely also when you joined 108 and I was like, I was like, oh, we're going to, that's it. That's how we are it, you know, like, it was like, you know, like scheming, like, you know, and everybody was in a million different bands. So it wasn't like we were going to like steal him from 108 or anything, even though that kind of was what happened. But, um, but it was just like, oh yeah, that's, of course. Yeah. We got to, that's how we're going to get Chris, you know, go play 108, get out of here. You know, like, <laughs> but I know that part of, and Norman, I forgive me if I'm mis attributing but between 108 and then you and shelter i know another thing with texas was that you wanted to have a band that didn't have like an agenda like a you know we're a straight edge band we're a that was a personal band thing or whatever i mean i um, think everybody sort of like had an we we all sort of had an unspoken maybe you know it wasn't something that we contrived but i definitely think it was something that we were all especially me and Chris having been in 108 and shelter, like big message bands that, you know, we were just kind of like, Ugh, I don't want to fly anybody's flag anymore. Like this kind of sucks. Like I just want to make a band and like it. <laughs> but I will say that the shelter era that you were on to me was very melodic, like the attaining the Supreme yeah. era, like that to me is their most, I mean, I know you're not on the record, right? You joined after, yeah. um, but it's, it's their most like DC sounding record, which is kind of funny, at least to me. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. No, I mean, I liked what I was playing and it was, they, they were certainly like, at least in terms of the proper quote unquote, proper hardcore scene, I'd say shelter was peaking in the time that I was with them from like 92, the end of 92 to the beginning of 94, I want to say was, was my little realm with them. But like, it um it's still you know they they didn't approach music the way i approached music like you know i at least i didn't get that from them you know like music was a vehicle for a message that's that's been ray and purcell's thing forever and that's awesome you know that's their thing for me music was a vehicle for just you know what i felt like when i woke up in the morning and I really wanted to make music like that. That was the stuff that really like um, turned me on as a listener. And I think learning how to play songs and sort of like, you know, Shelter basically what they did for me, the, the, the two biggest things that they did for me was one, I think they made me a million times better of a live player because I was playing in front of crowds that I'd never played in front of. And I was learning from mostly from watching live videos of the shows, how to look when you're on stage. Like no one tells you like, yo, you got to, your face is weird or like, you know, whatever you're doing, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like all those things became conscious. And now like 
when I walk on stage, I know exactly what I look like when I move my arm or like move my face or like, and you know, all those little things. It's, it's silly to say, but it's like, at the end of the day, if you walk out on stage and people are paying you, you're a performer, get over it. So that's like one thing. Um, and the other thing is that shelter taught me a lot about the business of being in a band because they were a very popular band making a lot of money. And I was sort of just watching their moves and sort of like figuring out, you know, business things basically, which I think ultimately helped Texas in the long run in terms of trying to create a situation for us that was sustainable financially. Obviously we were working with much less money, at least in the beginning, but um, it was helpful. You probably had to learn a lot how to like dodge people and still play the songs too, because there was always a zillion people jumping yeah. around. <laughs> well, that, that's probably why we were like, we stopped playing when people would jump on stage. <laughs> that was our game, yeah. Yeah. In shelter, yeah, I just kicked people. <laughs> oh, I got, a, I got a question. I got a the really like pointless esoteric question, but I have this memory that you guys were the first band, the first like, you know, band coming out of a hardcore scene that I ever had met who were big Oasis fans. <laughs> that was that, we, talked about, we talked about that when we in the record, right? Yeah, I'm sure. Into, like, you guys were super into Oasis, and I was like, I don't know, really? <laughs> Thank you, because my obsession was more being, being a better word than being big into. Like, yeah, like... I always thought the record had that, even though you guys had the songs before the recording, I had mentioned in the last episode to Garrett and Chris that as a listener, I always felt it had that like Brit pop swagger, the right word. I don't know. Like you could feel the energy in the Texas, even though, you know, the songs were, besides for the title track, ostensibly, you know, they were all written before you got to the studio. I always felt that it had this like, and a lot of it too can be Garrett's voice, I think has that like Brit pop kind of quality that a lot of the other bands that Texas would get lumped in with didn't have. So it's I mean, nice to, to hear extent, Jay we were, confirm we, too that we you were guys all, were all sort of like fans. we were all sort of learning how to be us, right? And because I mean, when you when I think about this band and this record, like this is a very formative time for us, we were all between like 20 and let's say 23 or something. Right. And, you know, that's the first time that you start acknowledging yourself as an adult <laughs> when you, you know, and you're sort of like on your own and trying to figure out your, your way in the world. And then also on top of it, now you have this like creative identity. Who am I, you know, as a player, as a writer, as a musician or whatever. Um, and so I think we all tried different hats on um, throughout the course of that band. Right. And so, like, you know, definitely like the Britpop thing, there's no doubt that 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 was a hat that Garrett, you know, probably tried on. And I was just like, yeah, this is I like this and this and I'll take that and then, you know, take the hat off and pick another hat. Right. Because that's how we do it as creatives. I feel like we're always like, Lord knows this is my favorite thing ever is <laughs> my favorite. Do you know who you are? Story ever is always going to be playing the bridge to back into the left. Jay going, God, I love that bridge. And me saying, you wrote it, dropping it down five frets and playing Saber. (laughs) (laughs) 
So now I'm gonna have I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to investigate. <laughs> but it's you know it's it's essentially like it's the same voicing, but like I changed the picking and changed the key. But it's it's you know remixing. You know that's what we right. do. We're all, yeah. we're just fucking taking other people's shit and remixing it. <laughs> right. The Jesus Lizard song that's actually uh, is it Miles Davis song. There's like a lick, like a Jesus, like the, the uh, what song is that? Uh, can't remember. Anyway, oh, anyway, it's a Jesus Lizard song that Dwayne Dennison famously stole from the, the riff from My, a Miles Davis record. But, you know, it's yeah. always good. Jesus Lizard yeah, songs. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that. Like, yeah, because oh. I was going to say, I, I, lo- I love Jesus Lizard, but I'm trying to think of the, of the track. Um, and then after you guys recorded, well, no, this record came out in April of 96, right? And then um, did you guys do a tour with Jawbox or just some shows? Because I remember in Philly, and I wasn't able to go, I was too young, you played at the Troc with Jawbox when I guess Jawbox did the self-titled, you all were on the self-titled record. Was that just a one-off show or did you play a couple of shows together? I feel like we only played two shows together. Yeah. I think we played a show Tony in New York High. together once. Tony Island yeah. High and then the Philly show, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, that's yeah. right. So, because weren't we supposed to play CBs that day? <laughs> yeah, we were, we were booked to play CBs with like the Promise Ring and Lifetime and a bunch of other bands like that. And then, and then we were like, we're going to go play this show with Jawbox <laughs> later. <laughs> I'd see that, you know, DC Trump, you know, again, you know. <laughs> yeah. They had to be fun people, shows. Though. People weren't happy, but it was the close. The shows were so close. A lot of people came to did both, you know? Yeah. The ba- I, I, and all those guys came to our show afterwards too. And I think we were even trying to figure out if we could play both shows. I think, you know, that was like, yeah. can we go and run over and do that? You know, and and I gotta say, we we were usually pretty good at keeping a commitment. Like I always think about that show that we played to no one at the cooler with Garden Variety, and <laughs> we were supposed to be playing nine thirty with Quicksand. That's right. But yeah. we were like, we uh, we already said yes. We can't go back on our word. Maybe the Jawbox thing happened later, and we were like, learned our lesson. Playing <laughs> Although Promise Ring and Lifetime, that's all. Awesome. No, that show was a packed show. Really. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Both, both are great shows. I would have tried, yeah, tried to find a way to do at least or to see both as a fan. I um, totally forgot about that, you know, that we played. The, it was like Garden Variety and Chisel. And I think, us, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, and I remember, yeah, it was like, and I remember just being, like, you know, kind of grumpy about it, like. We should be. We should play the black cat. You know, I don't think we've Although, ever played black cat either. You know, I don't know if you remember this, but I also remember thinking, or like walking around that night and being like, "Why is the weird dudes from Blonde Redhead here?" <laughs> <laughs> They're not here for us. But <laughs> They're huge fans. They're huge fans. I'm yeah. coming to the juice bar and getting food for me. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, but this, but this record really, like, I, I, it's funny. Like, so I'm going to say straight up too, I I wasn't going to do this podcast originally because I'd really was like, I've, I've said enough about this already, but when, you know, when they said, well, what about with Scott and Jay? I was like, yeah, okay, cool. That's fun. And I, 
And I will say that I don't think I'll talk about this record again. <laughs> because, but I do feel like I, you know, that's not because I have like some sort of misgivings or weirdness about it at all. Like, I love the record. I love the experience. I love my memories of sleeping in the control room with Jay and just like waking up and being like, yay, let's work, work. You know, like it felt like the first time that I ever was in like a quote unquote real band. Like I remember going into the van and listening to the final mixes and just being like, fuck, we're a fucking real band. This is so exciting. I don't know that I'll ever feel that way again. And I'm so happy to just have experienced that even once that, you know, I'm happy leaving that memory sort of where it is right now. So it's, well, I was going to ask too, like it's a nine song record and people are still talking about it now, 26 years later. Um, that's crazy, right? Like it's like, it's one, I mean, you had the re- the record, a couple splits, and a seven inch and people are still talking about it. But at the same time, yeah, I can see how it's like, well, it's nine. I've, I've said everything I need to say about these, <laughs> these nine songs, but it's, it's cool too with Norman, you're, you know, playing with Thursday. And I know those guys are all probably fans of, of Texas. Um, so it's kind of neat, you know, that you're doing something new. You're playing with them. Do they ever, I mean, I actually, about Texas? No, but they they punish me by playing their songs, which are really hard. <laughs> I played with Tucker, and Tucker always punished me with playing. He's like, "Let's play this. Let's go and play this." <laughs> I mean, we so we've played if it's here live with those guys, mostly because it's just such a break for me, um, like finger wise. <laughs> <laughs> um, it just like you know, it just creates a thing. I I think that. So that's actually an interesting point you make because I feel like, you know, over the years I've heard probably in the same way that, I don't know, like if Jay looked at Texas and, and saw his fingerprint on it at all, but like, you know, over the years, so many bands have, have said that the Texas fingerprint was on their records or their songs and I would never be able to hear them or hear it. And for years, the Thursday guys, um, both guitar players, Tom and Steve would, would say that they would say, Oh man, you're playing really influenced me. Like, that's really cool, but I don't hear it. But having learned the songs, specifically Tom's parts, now I'm like, oh, I totally fucking get it. And one of the things I get, which I've said to them kind of like, um, you know, sort of teasingly, is that the guitar parts actually take the part that I would change about my playing, which is almost exactly what, what Jay was talking about in terms of just feeling like I have to take up all the space all the time. Right. Like I was just constantly like, you know, like, like chord, 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 fill up all the space. The reason I got into drop D in the first place was because I could fill up more space. Right. Like it was, it was, it's a very claustrophobic way of playing and I don't play like that necessarily anymore. And I'm not saying it's bad. Obviously for Texas, I think it's great. I love the songs for Thursday. I love the songs. But as a player, I'm like, oh, my God, dude, you got to give my wrist a break. I'm dying over here. <laughs> no, sure. And it also takes you back to like, a, like, like, you know, hopefully if you've been playing music for this long, like you, it's a it's not a static thing. It's like you're, you're developing all the time ideas about what you're, you know, how about what you're trying to express and how you're trying to express it. And then, 
you sort of go back and look at this kind of like, I mean, I'm speaking personally, like talking about playing the Jawbox tunes when we did our reunion in 2019. And, and now when we practice, it's like, like I, I had to make peace with this approach to like a way of thinking about music that was completely unformed because I had no idea what I was doing then. I was just like trying really hard to like push myself into some realm where I felt like I was making something happen and, um, you know, trying, trying to surprise myself or whatever, or just whatever kind of weird personal contest you're in, those kind of personal contests you get into when you're younger and you're trying to create something. And then hopefully you, you know, that, that's, that sort of gets subsumed into a bigger picture of what you're trying to express if you, you're staying with your creativity through your life. And then you go back and look at it and you're like, what? whoa, what was I thinking? <laughs> take a break, buddy. You know, like right. <laughs> 20-year-old Jay. Like, can you think right, of any, you know? uh, off topic, can you think of any of the Jawbox songs that you guys, uh, you know, started rehearsing for those reunions where you were like, what the hell was I doing? Like, Oh, all of them. Because <laughs> there's plenty of them that are just like, that are just like, like, well, then we get to the chorus and you make a big E, everybody goes E, and then you kind of like make a lot of noise and then the drums do a weird thing and then it goes E again. Like, I'm like, what am I even, I'm barely, I was like trying to play without, you know, committing to a fret or something. Like, I don't even know. They're all, they were all like, and then what's weird is you, you kind of sort of learn to inhabit that thing again and realize that there's more like it's weird there's some songs i feel like you go back to and you're just like i can't this doesn't i can't do anything with this anymore because this is like it doesn't i have no connection to the person that conceived this except you know like whatever that was then and then what's cool is going back to something and being like oh well actually there's room here for for me now to still inhabit this and, and, and it, it's still, I have something to give to this and it has something to give to me that what I didn't even see back then, but it's there, you know, like, it's not just like this inert thing. It's like music is a living thing, you know? And so you can still bring something to it. And, and that's why, that's another reason that like, you know, old records are, you know, they don't, some of them don't date very well, but, but this is why records can be timeless. Right. It's like, it's, it's, there's I, something I real happens. Right. That's the reason why I'd say like, why I think Jack with one eye is my favorite song on the record and of the band, because there's actually, that's probably the one song where I give it space. Mm -hmm. I'm not playing all the time. I'm just doing like a chord here and a chord there. And it's like, it's pretty and the chord progressions are pretty normal. <laughs> the chords are all normal. Everything. It's just a straightforward, great song. And I didn't have to do any fancy tricks or anything to make myself feel right. good about it. <laughs> right. You just, you just like, for whatever reason, you were able to just believe in the essence of it and be like, yeah, why would it have to be more? Why would it have to be different than this? This is, this is the thing. Yeah. I mean, so anything, we just it's, get it's into one part. <laughs> Did we just get into hot tracks? Hot tracks! <laughs> <laughs> so we got Norman's. We already That's did, my hot track. We, we, yeah. gave, we, we gave ours on the last episode. Well, Javier didn't. Um, uh, Javier wasn't there. 
Um, so he'll have to get on the hot seat. Uh, Jason, what was yours again? <laughs> Mine, I had to go. I had to go too because I, I did. Do you know who you are? And then back into the left. But do you know who you are? The reason I love that song is the feedback in there is just so killer. And that was due to Jay. But it's just an awesome emotional song. And I've always loved that. But uh, leading into back into the left, this is perfect. So I missed it on the in-flight compilation. When it didn't have mm. that song before it, it didn't feel right to me. But that was my hot track from. And mine was uh, Jack as well. I just I love that song and I love the just the the build like how it just kind of builds up um off of that you know the the intro riff you know the and just how it just kind of comes all comes crashing in and the harmonies on the vocals like the backups and stuff I love which the backups was that did I know Garrett said he he did the backups as well any guys track backups under his or anything. I think it was all Garrett. Yeah, we know. Yeah, yeah I'm pretty you know, sure. Nerve to sing back then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember it... like leaving the studio and coming back and hearing the shit they were doing on backups and just being like, holy fuck. <laughs> like it was, that was something that I actually did not expect at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like going in, cause it's not like I think of Jawbox as a, uh, background vocal heavy bands or anything like that. So it was just like to hear that sort of like melodic richness. And it was just like, holy shit, this is fucking crazy. And it also was like, Garrett, you could sing like a motherfucker. <laughs> I, I love, I love the backup. I, and especially on, on a Jack one eye, I think it really comes out. Like he sounds fantastic and he does. And it's cool because he can sing. I guess his voice, he has this, range where it doesn't it didn't just sound like double like you have to really like when when i asked you know who did the backups and he said he did i was shocked i assumed it was either you or or scott um because it sounds diff it sounds different because he's you know um i don't know if i'm articulating right but it just it didn't just sound like well he was definitely using he was using ranges that you know his normal singing voice isn't in. So, uh, you know, he was going low, going high and it was, yeah, it's beautiful. And also like maybe when we talk about the fear of the punk thing, like that would be like another thing. Like I was like, Oh my God, who's doing backup vocals like this on records right now? (laughs) You know, it was like, that was a very almost pop move. And that had to have just been Jay just trying to, um, you know, kill us. Or something. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I definitely remember hearing, like, like I remember hearing the melodies and just being like, oh, it would be amazing, like, that, you know, to have this kind of harmony in there that would support, you know, certain parts of, like, it would help the chorus pop out or whatever. I mean, it's a big, like, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll take credit for that. <laughs> but like, I don't think any sh- of us went sure into the studio all the credit thinking for it, about take... that at all. No, not at all. I think we. I think also when hearing the, hearing them, like going, "Wow, this is what you sound like, Garrett." Like that was just like so, just like mind blowing that like it brought us our like like sounding like the EP and how like that was just like so like like rough and raw and like just what it was, and that's then hearing Garrett being able to like really use his voice and like 
And I, you know, Jay, you totally pushed him to do that. And like, well, I, I remember him being really psyched about it too. Like he got really into, mm -hmm. like once he kind of, it was, it was great. It was like a really awesome moment. Cause it was like, he realized it's like, I kind of got to see him realize what he was capable of in real time and then be like, Oh yeah, I'm going to do this. And yeah, he got yeah, really psyched on it. Yeah. And I remember him getting just like finding that confidence and being like, oh, and just like, and just going for it. Just being just, just sound so amazing. Yeah. I think That's we also great. all really wanted to impress you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just wanted you to, you know, just feel like, oh, maybe he'll think we're his peers. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, when you, so, you know, I know we talked earlier about the whole revelation thing. Like when you heard these guys, did you have, because I always like to kind of get an outside perspective it's a little off topic from hot tracks. We'll get back there in a second. But um, like, what were, were there any musical like touchstones in them when you first heard Texas where you're like, oh, this reminds me of, you know, maybe something that we wouldn't think of. Um, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think I was just really impressed with the, with like the melodicism of it, you know, and like the kind of like, I think that was the, that was the strongest first impression that I had, you know? Um, I mean, maybe I felt like some things kind of reminded me of, you know, a sort of Bob Mould, like sugar type of uh, vibe maybe. Jason um, sees the gleam in my in my eye when he said Bob. Yes, I and I agree also. I can see that. I, I can't believe it took that long for Sugar to be brought up because that was definitely a band we all agreed on and loved for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, they kind of have that uh, like when when you the jangly melodicism, you know, like that that very lends itself to sort of open tunings and whatnot. Like yeah. I love that. Nice. I am, you know, I I uh, apologize, but I I'm going to have to bail out here because I made an uh, um, arrangement to talk to my sister at 3.30. Oh, sure. That's a rare occasion. But you're going to need a hot, hot track, track real quick. <laughs> uh, back into the left is the song, one of the songs I wish I would have written. Nice. So, and apparently sure, you did. With no hesitation. <laughs> Jay, thank you so much. Uh, uh, thanks so much us, for man. having me. It's thank wonderful you. to see you guys. Likewise. See you, Jay. And uh, Happy New Year. Same to you. you thank too. you. Bye. So Scott, you got to, you still got to do a hot track. We, um, or wait, you know what? We'll let you think. Javier, you got your hot track. I do. Yeah. Are you surprised? <laughs> it's, it's our, it's our job, dude. Okay. Listen, <laughs> I'm sure it comes to a surprise as a surprise to nobody, but I did not like this record when it came out. <laughs> right. So, wait, wait, so hang on a second. I'm totally cool with that, but. I listened to the the seven inch episode. Yes, and um, and from a his, from a hardcore historian standpoint, um, some of the things that you said were totally off. That I was just like, it's cool if you don't like the seven inch, but you can't say, oh, when that seven inch came out, I didn't like it because I already liked Get Up Kids and Mineral. That's totally anachronistic, right? Oh, so God. like, Get Up Kids first show was actually a show that we canceled. We were supposed to play in Kansas City. And Shift's band broke down, and then they didn't want to cancel the show, so somebody was just like, do you guys want to play? And they were like, cool, yeah. So their record came out later, 
And and Mineral Carry from Christy Front Drive put out their first record, and we got that on tour also much later. So I was like, okay, so it's cool that you don't like it, but, but there was other reasons. It wasn't right. just so, that it was like, like it's cool if you're just like, dude, I like Chokehold. Uh, I love Chokehold. <laughs> but, yeah, so like, <laughs> but listen, I think... I think hardcore in in some ways ruined my life, right? <laughs> and, and a lot of us can say that. Everybody here. <laughs> yes. yeah. I concur. It, 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 it made That's me the name such, of my podcast. such a, a, like an obstinate uh, and black and white thinker. I like this, so I can't like this. My friends like this, so I have to like this instead because I'm a fucking think for yourselfer. And so when I say I already liked these bands, so I couldn't like this band, at the time, that, that was my mentality. I, maybe it was like, nah, I have to be different, so I can't like this thing that everybody else likes. So I just didn't I give it a chance. Too, by the way. So I just didn't give it a chance, which is unfortunate, because now, especially with this podcast, having the wisdom and uh, like being able to set out to do things. Like I'm going to listen to this record objectively. I'm going to find something that I do like from this band or this record, having the discipline to analyze things. So now when I listen to the Texas is the reason 12 inch, in 2021, which I did. I haven't listened to it yet this year, I'll admit. I have. <laughs> <laughs> I did this morning. Um, I, I could listen to it as a Texas is the Reason record as opposed to, oh, this isn't Get Up Kids. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. So it's really interesting to me to hear you all talk about the backup vocals. Because when I put this record on last week, on my own, without anybody asking me, listening to it on headphones while I wash the dishes, which is one of my favorite ways to take music in, because there's nothing else in the world. It's just me and this fucking record and the dishes. Johnny on the Spot, right? That's the name of the song? Yes. Yeah. First song. I was, like, really caught off guard by the backup vocals on there. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, Norm can sing backup vocals on this song. <laughs> like, I wish. <laughs> and, and so to hear, so then to hear you say that it was all Garrett, I'm like, wow, he did. It sounded like a different person. It didn't sound like him just doubling himself or singing a harmony. It sounded like different people singing. And so I love that. And I also really loved the octaves on that song and, and hearing the like different guitar parts. And it wasn't, it wasn't very technical. It was very smooth. And I think maybe that's one of the things that initially turned me off to this record was that it, it was too smooth for me. It was like, yeah. it was like not punk enough, as you say, whereas the get up kids had that fucking raw punk rough around the edges thing that I guess I, at the time I was looking for, but now I can appreciate it. And not because it's the first song on the record and I didn't make it past that, but Johnny on the spot really caught my ear as like, 
Okay, I can appreciate this song. I mean, the, that was the first so, song I heard. I, I think Texas. that like there was, there's there's a really interesting sort of way of because I was also you were also having that conversation in the seven inch episode about going back and listening to music, quote unquote, objectively. And I think that's a really difficult, if not almost impossible sort of errand, like, because sometimes the circumstances or the ways in which people listen to things are, they're just too intrinsically attached to the circumstances and situations around them. So like I, I was saying, I have tons of blind spots. There's a, there's a period of hardcore and hardcore adjacent music that I just missed. And all these records that people are like, this is a seminal record. Like I didn't listen to it when it came out, when relationship of command came out, didn't listen to it. Oh, wow. Like when, um, you know, so one of the things like Thursday, we're going on tour with cursive, uh, later this month, like cursive kind of went over my head too. Like literally like just hit my hat off my head, but, <laughs> <laughs> but cursive, like they completely went over my head, never really listened to them. And uh, I went back and was listening to it, and I was like, okay, this is really good, but am I really understanding why people love them the way they do? Mm. I don't know. I don't know that I'm getting that fully. And that's not a judgment on cursive. That's just saying in, in the circumstances and situations with which I'm receiving the material now, yeah. um, this is how I can, this is all that I can perceive. Yeah, so, and so I feel with, I totally feel you 100%. There's so many records that were like, because I mean, also like we weren't really listening to our peers' bands that much, like, you know, and the bands that were happening at the time, because we were like, obsessed with Swerve Driver and Helmet and, you know, My Buddy Valentine, like, and, you know, like, so it wasn't like, right. we weren't like, so like, you know, people tell me about, they love the Get Up Kids. I'm like, I don't really, never, I never really listened to the Get Up Kids. I saw them play yeah. a few times. They were kind of cool. Right. Like, you were taking the, the music in, in real time by playing these shows and maybe not even like sitting there and really analyzing the live sets of your peers, but just like, Walking through the club or seeing the sound ch chat, sound check, right. or or like, or oh, they're cool guys, like, yeah, they're like, oh, like, or like, even like, like a lot of friends and stuff, but like, yeah. it was like, you know, even like, I'll say this, and probably people are gonna get mad at me, but like, even a band like Lifetime, like, they were like our peers and our friends. I even played with them for a couple minutes, and you know, but like, it was like not a like those records. I don't really like. I don't have this like connection. Be like Jersey's best dancers. <laughs> like, and like, and I know so many people like that have lifetime tattoos that I really respect. Their like their you know their opinion of music. But it's just like it's not like it was just like a right. thing. Like, and I think they're a great band. I love everybody in that band. And, and you know, but it's like it's yeah. just not a record. If I it would, doesn't click, it doesn't. I click put on my headphones and I get into yeah. it. And, but like I will say, like you know, it's like. I always say this too, like people go, oh, you do listen to this band. I'm like, well, not on purpose, but like, yes, I've heard it, you know, but, sure. and I like it, you know, but like, and, and I think that's the thing with like Lifetime for me. And like, like, like when they're on, that's cool. But it's like, like, but it's like also weird to me. Like, and I don't know why I'm picking on Lifetime so much because like, I actually, it's probably not the, the right band to connect it to, but like, there's so many bands that people like expect, you know, everyone to just love because it's just this, it's this record but a lot of the things that were happening at the same time you know they were just happening at the same time and we didn't really have time to like or like when you when, you know, when you're when you're in that a lot of the bands that you're looking at you're sort of looking at as oh 
would it make sense if we played together? Mm. So like, I'm going to go see boys life or blue tip or whoever. And then I'm going to be like, Oh, we should ask them to play shows. Right. And mm. that's what we did. Like we would see another band. We'd be like, they're cool. They're in the, they're in the fam, bring them in, you know? Yeah. And that's why if you look at our concert history in the uh, anthology somewhere uh, and all the bands we ever played with, you start to see patterns. You start to see like, Oh, they became friends with that band and then just took them everywhere all the time. <laughs> you know, and that was that was how we perceived the other bands. And so, um, you know, it's not to say that we I didn't like Blue Tip. Uh, like we were all really into Blue Tip, right? But like, um, but I definitely saw them as like, oh, this is a cool band to play with. Like, let's play shows, let's hang out, let's yeah. have fun. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, a different, I feel like, it's a different way of receiving it. I feel like Scott kind of summed up Javier, though. Like, did that resonate with you, Hav? The way because I feel like that's you. Like, you you almost you can't like people just have like Norman put it blind spots. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if you're if you're not into something when it's happening in real time, it is hard to go, to go back. back. Yeah. So take like um, ninety eight, ninety nine. Right when I played in a really dark, heavy hardcore band, and what else was going on in hardcore around that time? Youth Crew Revival. Right, and and it was like you fucking pick a lane. So now for me to in 2021 for the first time be hearing better than a thousand, right? <laughs> and, and and really trying like this is like a fucking sealed that's still sealed cassette. Like really, Shout out tr- to Oise. yeah. What up, Oise? Like, really trying to be like, oh, this is good, and not, you know, I don't have the same connection that that you all had, that especially Jason yeah. and Greg had with that music at that time, you know. But for Texas, the reason this LP was all lanes are open, and sure. that's, that's why I that's love what it because it's me. the one it, that just it took off my blind spots completely because I used to separate hardcore and indie rock yeah. music and i thought of them as two separate things right it could be that it, it could be that meme where it has all the like the sword and the hand and the axe and everything's going and in the middle is texas is the reason like you could <laughs> yeah. like you could like disembodied and swerve driver and 10 foot pole and get up kids and texas is the reason and, kind of and met people did <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> that's also what we were like kind of like we would have played with all those bands and, sure. and, and played with, and that's, that's kind of what I think we always wanted. Like it wasn't ever like, and that, you know, like, I, you know, like that was, that was our way of being punk. You know, it was like, yeah, we're, we're going to, we're going to have big, loud guitars. You know, we're going to, you know, be around the same people. We like this type of music and these are like, and we want to be around people that are like us. And, mm-hmm. and that's kind of, you know, that's kind of what Texas is the reason was. But with Hog too, like I feel like one of the things you said, um, like about ninety eight, ninety nine, pick a lane. Mm-hmm. That was that was one of the reasons why I think where my blind spots came from because that's where they start. Mm-hmm. They start in when I see hardcore going from desegregation, which is sort of like you know the Texas era. You know what I mean? I feel like it was just like. It Everybody was a fucking free for all. We were yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. All Texas the shows were playing with mouthpiece, playing yeah, with birth yeah, crisis. Like, yeah, like it just for sure. It did, we played with bloodlet. It didn't uh-huh. fucking matter. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and then the resegregation, mm-hmm. right? Like, and so once it became pick a lane again, I was like, fuck no, pick a lane. 
fuck you. I'm going somewhere else. And I got into house music. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, th- I think that there is something to that. And, and I don't know, you know, where hardcore is at today. You know, like, I don't know if people are very strictly picking lanes, but when I look no, at flyers for shows everywhere, no. And that's yeah. what, one of the things I, I really commend like this new generation of hardcore is that not only do I hate saying kids, that makes me really feel old. Children. Kids. Not only do kids <laughs> like Babies. all different kinds of hardcore bands, like they'll like Turnstile, they'll like One Step Closer, they'll like, you know, Touche Amore, they'll like Jesus Peace or yeah. Knocked Loose or whatever. And they all kind of sound different. But they also don't give a fuck what people think about them liking other kinds of music. Yeah, like the Goo like, Dolls, Lemonheads. Yeah, that, yeah, right. You know, Billie Eilish or whatever. The, you know, anything. They'll just they just Where does like the it. Third Eye Blind thing come from though. Ah, uh, that I, that's funny. <laughs> Somebody, I, yeah, I, that's it's a, Third Eye Blind theme. is sick. It's a theme. oh god no. I love that first LP. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm gonna. I, I'm going to be Hav right now. I'm, I'm going to say it's not for me. Oh. <laughs> now, Scott, you also don't like it? Yeah, somebody somebody um, just a- asked me, like, what do you think of this? And I was like, and I literally, like, it was like a link on the phone. And I like, was like, is this what I think it is? And I like, clicked on it. And I was like, and I just was like really polite about it. I was like, oh, it's pretty good. Never got into it. But, you know, like, but it was just like, kind of like, is this a thing? And then I started realizing that like, yeah, this is like a, like, yeah, I, I I missed it. I don't know. I, I remember uh, the God. one song, and that's really Yeah, if they it. send one of the hits, you got to go for the deep so cuts. So it came the from, the whole thing came from, somehow I must have mentioned that I love the first two Counting Crows records. And the McTurnan brothers, Mike and, and Brian, they are big fans as well. Like, huge, because, you know, especially Mike and Brian, they're lyrics guys. They love lyrics. And, like, the Counting Crows lyrics are actually awesome if you sit and read them. And I think then we... But how somehow... did you feel when you found out it was a wig? <laughs> <laughs> I'm finding out right now. Yeah. Are you kidding? Because that's, that's real talk. That's fact. No, I did not know that. For real? <laughs> it, it has been a wig this whole fucking really? time. Dude, but straight up, the Counting Crows, I've never paid attention to. So that's, <laughs> that's hilarious, though. <laughs> I didn't know that. I was Norman. I was today years old, but we pit them against Third Eye Blind, and you know, because we were talking about, I guess, like that era of radio and pop rock. music at the time. Yeah, Third yeah. Eye Blind or Counting Crows is the argument. But Norman, do you think that the Texas Seven Inch sounds anything like Turning Point? I don't think it doesn't. Yeah, I think yeah. I mean, like, I, I think it has that sort of like. Uh, I mean, the guitars even have they're a little bit more sheeny the way that like nineties records or, you know, like a record like turning points record was. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that was, I can definitely say for Fountainhead, I have riffs on the Fountainhead record that were very inspired by turning point. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that it's always the turning point LP, I think was real ahead of its time in a way. And especially yeah. the, the split with no escape. Oh, dude. That, that's I mean, that's an stuff. example of a band that, like, like I remember when the Bold 7-inch came out, and, like, I was in high school, and, like, I went to talk to the only other hardcore kid in high school, and I was like, 
I'd only heard Today We Live. They played it on Crucial Chaos on Thursday night. So the next day was Friday. I go in and I'm like, oh, my God, Tim, did you fucking hear the new Bold song? Uh, (laughs) So like, this sucks. Oh, I was like so angry and upset. But when I heard turning point go from raw to like you know what they became (laughs) that was a totally different story so it wasn't like i was just like knee jerk i just felt like qualitatively i was like holy shit that's next level yeah it was there was something there that was there the whole time that you didn't even know and that was like exciting well i was uh, for me i was like how could this like band be like really regular to being really special and like really interesting because like turning yeah. just like a very basic hardcore band. I remember seeing them play and be like, "When okay, let's go, let's next band, please." You know, I don't remember right. what it was, but I remember being at the Anthrax and being like, "Oh, here's another band that wants to be to today." You know, like uh, it's right. like, yeah. you know, and I, I love the demo in Seven Inch, but I don't, but I love them because they're so simple and raw, yeah. but. When I think of Turning Point, I don't think of I think of the no, I think of the split, the, dude. And I the love split. the split. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, I have such memories that, like, I have a weird memory. Just when you mentioned the seven inch of buying the seven inch of Bleaker Bob's, mm-hmm. and being like, but not because like I was like, fuck yeah, Turning Point, but really because in my mind I was like, oh, they sound like you today. Like, yeah. <laughs> it was really just like that's why I bought it. Um, you know, so it, yeah, what Scott said is is right on. It's just sort of like, how does that even happen? You know. There's a mystery and wonder to that. <laughs> it's amazing. It's and they a, did lay I, the groundwork, I think, for a lot of what happened, you know, in the 90s with you guys and and all the other, you know, melodic bands. I think they they were definitely a, like a touchstone. Mm-hmm. Well, they, I mean, I'm, I'm playing in a band called Thursday. That's right. I just never thought of the Texas 7 inches sounding like Turning Point until Brian brought it up. Kind of jokingly, and then I saw that, and then I saw it with the vocals mm. on there. So that's why I brought it up. But yeah, yeah I mean, that that still has the hardcore flavor. I mean, there's still like a, a little bit of it on there, more yeah. so than the album. Yeah, yeah there's mosh. mosh parts. There's the mosh yeah. part for sure. That's yeah. right. <laughs> I was a little upset that y'all didn't even recognize the mosh on that episode. I thought we did. Oh, yeah, I did. Did. <laughs> did you call it by name? Because really, Greg said, and it's got the sick mosh. He yeah, said, I think I said mosh. either mosh or did I say two step part? I don't know. Oh, uh, I thought you said sick or mosh. Or halftime. Because that means and it's, it's super, official. I mean, like, I've talked, that song's super fun to play, too, because it is like, or to sing, I should say. I don't play the guitar when, when One Up would cover it, but like, just to sing, it's a just a super fun song. And it's two minutes long, and it has everything that you could ask for in a like a melodic, hardcore type song in yeah. two minutes. I mean, I would, I, I wish I could learn more from it because like that was a, <laughs> that's an example, that's an example of like a song that just like doesn't have anything and it has everything. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. Yeah. So speaking of songs, Scott, the roundabout <laughs> way of coming back to. I'm gonna say my favorite song on the play live and my favorite song just as I like that. Um, uh, back into the left live for sure. It was just like always just 100% on, and it was like just so fun to play. You know, I get to do my windmills and you know, jump around <laughs> and, hop up and all that shit. Um, and then I'll say probably as a song, um, uh, 
we call it the drinking song, but um, you know, it's uh, you know, there's no way I can talk talk my way out of this one tonight. And just because you know, it's just like it's all bass, and and I just remember like being in my tiny bedroom on 11th Street with Garrett, like trying to like you know figure it out and like you know coming up with like the the, the beginning of it and be like, hey, it sounds like the embrace song. And I wish Jay was here so you know we can bring that back. Dude, that just <laughs> you see, yeah, clicked. So that's in where that started from. It was like right you know, now, and I've been listening to both records for more than half my life, so, yeah, and I can so that, totally you know, hear it now. Mm-hmm, so that, uh, that no that, more pain, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's where that came from, and you know, and then you know, me and Garrett kind of coming up with the idea, and then bringing it to Norm, and then going to dailies, and just and hashing it out, just and then you know, and then just you know, even just playing it the last you know times we played it and like when it starts it's just like it always had this like you know amazing you know you know feeling of warmth and just you know you know feeling great about you know about what we did and and how we got there that's a song that i feel like evolved live too like i think when we first were playing it like in the 90s sometimes it felt like a lull in the set but every time we brought it back like you know, in the 2000s era, like it felt more like, um, like what it was a drinking song. Like you were at a bar with all your friends and everybody's like got their arms around each other and they're singing and, you know, and it's like, it felt like it's almost like a, you know, put your lighters up kind of moment. (laughs) Yeah. And even though I remember we like, we would take it out and when we were really a band, like we would take it out of the set for a little while and then we'd be like, Oh, let's play it. And then we would play it. And it was like, and be like, people love this song. Like, see, we got to play this song, you know? And but yeah. it was always that like song that would like kind of come and go. But then when we had like, you know, definitely when, you know, the, the last version of Texas is the reason, like when we, it was a mainstay, it was like, wow. It, like it definitely like, was like, you know, it, it made it like, it just made the band feel really great to be able to play that song. Yeah. And then now the embrace thing, it's a whole, that adds a whole new like sweetness yeah, listen to, um, listen to him. <laughs> one of the one of the things I thought was cool when Jay was here, it's always interesting to me to get that like outside perspective of somebody who like because you know for us, me, Jason, Javier, like we're entrenched right now in Revelation, and you know obviously the early stuff being New York hardcore. It's always sort of refreshing almost to hear somebody be like, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't really into any of that stuff, <laughs> but then he was into all this like other cool stuff that I came up on. And he mentioned, you know, I know Jason saw the gleam in my eye when he mentioned scream, like I love scream and all that DC stuff. I just think you guys working with him was such a cool choice. Um, and it was always something I thought was cool. And it was awesome to be able to talk to all three of you here together and, and also get, you know, of course, when we had Brian on the seven inch and, and Garrett and Chris to get the perspective, because despite only having a few songs, you know, you guys made music that I still listen to regularly. And a lot of people do, and uh, it's super important. And I don't know, that's, that's about, that's all the fan fan fanning <laughs> out I can do. Um, so what was your first crush? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Wait, you know what's funny? I don't even remember. I don't remember. Mine could have been David Hasselhoff. I don't know. You know what? It might have been. Knight Rider uh, was big back then. What can I say? It was. I had a yeah. Knight Rider big wheel. It might have yeah. actually been uh, 
which is funny because she ended up doing music was uh, Jenny Lewis in The Wizard. Okay, she was in that wow. movie, and you know she was did I guess what Rilo Kylie and all that yeah. stuff. But she was in that when I was a kid. I was super into her. So, hey, so to be honest answer. with you, mine was Alyssa Milano. Yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, like, who's the boss, Sarah? Yes. Who's the boss, Pretty basic. Yes, so, it is. It at is. least you didn't ask when the last time we cried was. <laughs> oh, dude. All year. I feel bad when people ask me that now because it's like literally like every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. You're like, well, uh... <laughs> like, you don't understand the pain I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> Man. The pain inside, little release reference there. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, that, I guess that's basically it. Uh, Scott, I did. I talked to Mark McKinney today. I told him I was talking to you. Oh, nice. He said you're. He said you are uh, the greatest plant-based chef in the world. He's too nice. He's yeah. too nice. <laughs> his new his new spot we've mentioned on here, Primary. It's mm -hmm. excellent. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I told him I want to come and cook with him someday. Like, I definitely want to make that happen. If it can happen someday. Yeah. It's, if you definitely get to Philly, let me know. It's, but it's fantastic. For sure. I'm bummed and, I didn't uh, get to punish Jay Robbins about uh, novelty. But. Yeah. Like, are you shocked that Javier likes a Jawbox record? Because I am. I am. What's up, everybody? This is Javier from the Where It Went podcast. You might notice that the episode's fading out right here. But guess what? If you were a patron, you would get an additional 50 minutes of content right here. Yeah, you would hear me, Greg, and Jason talk about our feelings about the Texas is the Reason 12-inch. But this is just a regular episode, so we're going to end it here. And uh, we hope that's okay with you. Yo, please excuse my voice. Uh, I was out late rocking with my band, Godhead. But I just wanted to tell you about our top tier patrons real quick. Billy Tunnell, Brandon Gavell, Brian Skiffington, Brooklyn, Cesar Falcon, Chad Keplinger, Cliche John, David Palmer, Dirk Focused, Dustin Perry, JPD2, Jeremy Holahan, John Cowell, Nate of Head to Wall Fame, Rob Moran, Ryan Walker, Tim Shear, Siren Records, and Dollar Slice Bootlegs. Listen. If you want more information about all this and how to become a patron, go to www.whereitwentpodcast.com and you can find all that shit out. And we'll see you next episode. Bye-bye. <laughs>